How are you entrepreneurs? Today we have Ryan Matthews. He is an inspirational speaker, an author, and a decorated veteran. He's trained over a thousand dogs. Um, it, it's it's a pretty wild story. He talks about all the different adversities he's kind of gone through, stabbing himself to doing the wrong thing in a wrong moment and getting in some big trouble, kind of working through it. It's just it, it's a strong story of fighting through, uh, knowing the situation, and trying to find the right path. Take a listen, subscribe, and tell your friends. Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with real estate agent Vinny SD. All right, so we are here with Ryan Matthews, inspirational speaker, author, a decorated veteran. You have been on TEDx twice. Uh, also, you have been, you built out your civilian training program, correct? Uh, over 3,000, I think, uh, dogs trained, correct? That is, you got it. All right, so you have a, a wild story, so let's just get into it. Let's, let's just... do it. I love it. No time like the present, right? Yeah. I think your audience can appreciate this. We're going to start this way, and I hope they really like roller coaster rides. Um, so I joined the Army not because I was a patriotic American. I joined because I wanted to run away from what was uncomfortable in my life, and that was me having a drug-dealing career. And what happened was my defining moment to join the military was when my friend robbed me of my own drugs. Now, my brother taught me that when you're in that kind of world – you never should trust anyone, even your closest friends. Well, that meant that I was always ready for whatever may happen. And I had a knife tucked alongside my shoe, uh, inside my, um, alongside my ankle, should I say. And when my friend tried to rob me, I held the gun, not the gun, I held the knife to his throat. And I wanted to stab him, but I didn't. In fact, he even laughed at me because he knew I wouldn't stab him in the throat. Um, but instead, I've tried to grab the drugs, which he had underneath the shirt, and I tried to stab him. But in, in efforts to try to stab him, the knife slipped, and I nearly cut my finger off, and I ended up stabbing myself in short. And so the joke is I wasn't cut out to be a hardened criminal, play on words, right? <laughs> and so – Did your friend, did he stay in the business or – Yeah, so, well, so after that happened – Three days later, he calls my work and he threatens to blow my head off with a shotgun. And that's when I was like, man, I'm in over my head. I believe my brother was doing a long, a long bid. Like, you know, he's done multiple uh, many year sentences in prison and I decided to run. So after that phone call, I pretty much went to the army recruiter and I was like, look, I'll sign up right now. If you just give me two simple things, one, give me really far away from here. I want to be stationed overseas. <laughs> and number two, I want to become military police. My thought was, look, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. Right. And <laughs> I knew I needed to clean up, man. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. And so they gave me that eventually military police and being stationed in Germany for two years. And so I never did deal with that. I chose to run away. 
And there's lessons in that, of course. And so the funny part about me going in as military police isn't that. It's the fact that eventually I become a dog handler. In 2002, I become a certified military working dog handler. And the first dog that they assign me is a 95-pound German Shepherd narcotic detection dog. <laughs> like who does that right so i can't think of anyone more well equipped to know where all the good stash parts stash spots are than someone that's a former drug dealer in fact when we would do training with the dogs the trainer running the exercise would give me a hard time because i would search the room while the dog was searching the room as well and that's not how you're supposed to do it the dog should be doing all the work and so that was that was entertaining and it, it was actually quite fun and I've always had this love for animals, but I had developed this great appreciation for them uh, doing this military working dog uh, handler work that I had done. And eventually I graduated into becoming an explosive canine handler. And they don't give you a bomb dog first. You work a drug dog because you have to you know, have these skills so that you're not blowing stuff up. Well, that seemed really cool. And I had worked with like President, vice president, four-star generals, all kinds of fun stuff, many secret service missions. And it seems cool. And, and from an outsider, it's like, wow. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, we did these bomb threats. Well, it seems cool until you know what's really going on behind the scenes. And when they tell you to go and search inside a building for a bomb, it fucks with your head. And so I developed PTSD even before the war. Where Because I took my job so serious that when they would say, there's a bomb in that building, go and find it, I really believed it wholeheartedly. I took my job so serious, and I told myself that I was dead to have the courage to go and search that building. And I did that time and time again, and eventually it takes a mental toll. And I also, at one point, had volunteered to go to the war. And I deployed with an explosive canine dog. And that was kind of a shit show, very much so, not kind of, because I didn't get one day of training. So I go to war, and I did not know what to expect. I mean, so much so as we do this thing called a combat, combat land, and that means they turn the engines off to the plane, and they shoot off these heat flares from our plane so that an RPG, a rocket propelled grenade, can't shoot us down. And so they turn the engines off and they pretty much do a nosedive. And then you hear, thunk, 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 thunk. and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And this soldier across the way must've seen my oh shit face because he's like combat land. And I was like, what is a combat land? Like I didn't have a clue what to expect. And now I was kind of messed up prior because the plane before that, that we had taken, we had to emergency land because we lost the oxygen supply. So we did an emergency land in Interlake base in Turkey. And so I was kind of already kind of messed up from that. Um, so I did the war thing and I served six years in the army and it really gave me a lot of discipline. It gave me leadership. It taught me to be direct, sometimes too direct, especially if you ask my girlfriend and, and I gained a a hugely needed newfound confidence in my so, military service. Where did you grow up? I grew up. That's a very interesting question too. I grew up all over, but for a majority, I grew up in orange County. What's unique about me is, you know, I grew up in orange County and primarily that's where I lived. And we moved around a lot. 
However, I would also go to LA uh, to visit my mom on the weekends and not always in the best neighborhood. So I know this LA lifestyle and I know this Orange County lifestyle. And for those of us in Southern California, there really is this thing called the orange curtain and it certainly does exist, right? And and so I know I know a bit of both. And I'm really glad that I've had that contrast and and seeing that there's different ways uh, of life. So how does like so most people because you try to get away or you look to get away from your drug dealing background, right? And then you go into the military, you kind of evolve as an individual, yet you decide to go back to Orange County. Like, did you ever think about starting new, starting fresh, or was that just like a demon you had to go after? So I actually, after after the military, I was I took a contract job as a narcotic dog handler on Kwajalein Atoll. And that's a small army base, and it's half a mile wide by three miles long. It's not even an island. It's called an atoll. It's so small. And so that's what I did after the war when I had gotten out. And it was a really chill job. Well, I met an incredible woman there, and we had ended up doing a long-distance relationship. And we ended up meeting halfway in Utah. So I moved back to California for just a few months. But I hadn't been in California since I was 19 years old prior to joining the military. Then I came back to California at about 26. And we do this long-distance relationship. We meet in Utah, and we rent an ATV. And there's not a whole lot to do in Utah. So we spend a majority of our time riding this ATV around. The issue was I had only been on the ATV like two other times in my life. And I just was in the war fairly recently. And I've always liked adrenaline and these types of exciting things. And I was very reckless with this ATV. And in short, I ended up going 52 miles an hour around a loose gravel curve. And I ended up losing control. And I remember yelling, jump, to land onto the trail. And my ex-girlfriend was on the back, holding onto the back rack of the ATV. And it was too late. It flung me over the handlebars. I don't roll down the mountain, bust my helmet open on a boulder. And I, I'm choking up water in a stream at the base of the mountain. And she is pinned under the ATV, pinned against the tree. And I had to crawl to find her. And I had to look in her eyes and tell her I had, had to leave and go and get help. Because no one could have found us. The cliff was so steep. And so it took me 45 minutes. Of course, my cell phone didn't work. And I had tracked the time. And I found help, but it took 45 minutes. And eventually, we were able to get the ATV off of her. And she ended up getting flight for life. And I'm so thankful and grateful that she did survive. And I moved to Colorado to be with her and to take care of her after she had 12 broken bones, a collapsed lung, and punctured kidney, and just had been through way too much. And for many years, I took on all that guilt. And I was very ashamed that I was so reckless with both of our lives. And so I moved to Colorado to take care of her. And so I didn't come back to California up until actually just a few years ago. Oh, wow. So how did you overcome the idea of, of that guilt? You said you did have guilt and you did have it on your shoulders. What happened there? I remember calling her parents from the hospital. And I'm in the hospital bed and I'm just screaming on the phone. I fucked up. I fucked up. I fucked up. And and that's all I said at first. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, we were in an accident. 
and um, Lindsay's in surgery or something like that. I don't remember. Um, we didn't know what her state was. And it, it was extreme. I mean, it, it was so bad, man, that she was like 30 minutes from not making it, I believe they said. And she had to get her whole blood supply. And how I overcame that was one time and two, her loving family. Like they never did blame me. They were never mean to me. They never criticized me. They were always been so loving and supportive of me. In fact, I've always viewed them as my family, even after Lindsay and I had broken up. And I've always just had so much love and respect for all of them, her and her family. And so it's them continuing to show support, even to this day. And, you know, I even reached out to them and was like, hey, I'm starting to get a lot of interviews and these types of things. And Lindsay and the ATV accident is a part of my journey. And can I, do I have your blessing? Can I share? And they had given me the green light to do so. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And because um, she's such a special part of my life and um, always in my heart and, and often on my mind. And, and so anyways, I could just say time and then her family as well, supporting me in, in my endeavors. And again, they've been just so kind to me and they've never bashed me. And so then after you guys break up, when did you start getting into the, the, the dog training business? So I moved to Colorado in January of 20, 2008, January of 2008. And in March of 2008, I bought into a dog training franchise because I didn't know what I was going to do for money. And I ended up making a lot of money and being really successful pretty quickly and Lindsay and I did break up about 10 months after me moving there. We always had remained friends. Um, but as, in short, she was a bit younger, so she was into partying and she was still in college. And I'm now this newfound entrepreneur. And so our lifestyles were quite a bit different. Um, but again, always remained at friends and, and always have and always will love each other. That's for sure. And so anyways, that's when I started in 2008. And so from 2008 to 2011, I had a really good run where I was working with 10 to 12 people a day. I was booked out like a month and I made close to a million dollars in two and a half years training pet dogs. (laughs) And so I share that because if you have any entrepreneurs listening, if I can make that kind of money training dogs, you you all can monetize whatever it is that you have mastery or expertise at. And, and make you know a, a pretty reasonable living as well. So it though it wasn't gravy all the way through. You did have an incident. Can you? Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't. And so the interesting part about that was is you know at this point my peak I was doing about forty five thousand a month. I was like I said, it was like a month to work with me. I had commercials on TV, a fleet of fully branded vehicles, and a huge facility and a team. And, and I felt like I was on top. Well, I was a workaholic and I was trying to silence the voices in my head of PTSD, the constant paranoia, the constant, that's going to blow up the constant, that person's too close to you, this hypervigilance and this uncomfortable feeling even in my own skin. And so I just kept myself busy by way of work. And I ended up having stomach pain for five months. And one morning I woke up and I remember I had thrown up something clear and I had never happened that that has never happened to me, should I say in my lifetime. So I knew just something wasn't right. 
And I called my office and I said, cancel all my appointments. I'm going to rush to the ER. And so I drove myself to the ER. And within 24 hours, I was under the knife having emergency surgery to remove a mass. And it was stage three colon cancer. Oh, wow. And I'm 30 years old at this time, right? And I had never really had any major medical issues. I never even broke a bone before. So, so what happens next? Yeah, it gets it gets better as it relates to drama and a whole lot worse. And so after after the cancer diagnosis, I went through six months of chemotherapy. But just a few days after my first round of chemo, I ended up having what they call a, a widowmaker heart attack, which attacks the left ventricle. And my heart was really damaged big time. Like I remember my cardio was just walking in front of the house, you know, 50 feet and I still needed my drug. So I, st I went back to work a month after the heart attack, which is foolish. Like who does that? You got to take time. You got to heal. But again, I need my fix. And so I had, May was the cancer. July 4th was the heart attack. And just a month later, August of 2011, I went back to work and Obviously, I was a little distraught as it relates to all my physical issues and, of course, the mental health, which I never really did address. And so I remember that my dog had this little sore on her paw, and she kept licking this sore, and she wouldn't stop. And my logic was that this little wound on her paw won't heal if she continues to lick it. So my thought was just to put a muzzle on her so she couldn't access it and it could dry and heal. But when I did that, she was not conditioned to the muzzle that I had tried to put on. So when I put the muzzle on my dog, she charged after me. And in that moment, it was like everything came crashing down. I went into paranoia. I went into fear. And sometimes from fear can breed aggression, irritability but more so aggression. And so when she charged after me, I overreacted and I tossed her numerous times and I even socked her with a closed fist a couple times. Now she didn't get hurt. And, you know, I'm trained in army SWAT, right? Like I've worked with special forces and infantry. I've done some crazy things. Like if I want to hurt stuff, I know how to hurt things. I never did want to hurt her. Did I overreact? Absolutely. I overreacted. I could have walked out of the building and it would have been a non-issue, but I was so stuck in my head. I was so stuck in my ego that I am the alpha. You can't do that. And my office manager saw it. I did it right in front of her. I didn't care. I was so stuck on being right and I was so fearful. I didn't care what was going on around me. Well, she turns me in for animal cruelty. Now, she happened to send a – I've never shared this part in, in the, any interview actually. She ended up sending the video from my security cameras to the authorities. Oh, wow. And – so I end up lawyering up and the attorney watches the video and she's like, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about this. We're going to do a donation to the Humane Society. You'll be fine. Well, within 24 hours, out in front of my facility is the news, news crew from all over. And they're doing a story on what had happened. And I was on the front page of the newspaper. This was on the news channel. And they end up making an example out of me. And so all of a sudden, my attorney changes changes the dialogue and she's like, Hey, um, some things have changed. They're going to make an example out of you and you need to take a plea. You don't know your mortality. She's like, you don't even know how long you're going to be here for given your cancer diagnosis. She's like, you're going to be in court for five years. Take the plea and be done with this and move on with your life and take care of your health. And that's what I did. So I took a plea. I ended up getting a misdemeanor, misdemeanor for animal cruelty. 
I did a month in jail. I lost my business, although I was still able to sell it for 115K. Uh, but I, most importantly, the worst part was I lost my dogs. And that was what was so, really so devastating that that was the part that hurt the most. And I never gained that closure, you know. And so after that, I, I hid for five years, man. I didn't do anything with my life. I had a big old pity party and lit, lit, kind of like my dog, licking my wounds, right, for five years. And one morning, it was about three years ago, I woke up and I felt really weak, similar to how I felt when I had my first heart attack. And I started to sweat really bad, like sweat dripping onto the ground. And I felt like this darkness come over me, like I wanted to just lay down, like I was passing out. And it got so bad, I ended up calling 911. And it got it progressed even worse, where I think that I'm about to die. Like, this is my last moment on earth. Now, I'm not the kind that's ever had a panic attack, so it's that's not what this is. Uh, I literally thought it was another heart attack. And I don't know what it was, but I do know that in this moment, when my head's about to hit the ground, and I feel like this is my last moment on earth, I had a lot of regret. And so I reach out to this higher power and I beg for another chance at life. And I admitted that I was taking life for granted. I admitted that I never really did address my issues. I admitted that I still had a lot of growth to do as a person and I was committed to doing that. And so I promised a higher power that I would transform my life and then share how I did it with other people around me. And gradually I start to feel better. And for the next three years, for the, should I say the past three years, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing all these different modalities of healing. And now I'm acting out that soul contract, like I had said, of serving other people. And so since that, I've been on fire, man. It's been great. Wait, is that when you moved back to Orange County? I moved back to Orange County about uh, four years ago. So you were still in that weak, weak moment when you moved back to Orange County? Absolutely. Yeah. I had, I had lived that a bit while I was in Colorado and then out here in California as well. Yeah. What, 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 what do you think brought you back to Orange County? What definitely brought me back to Orange County was family. So my grandfather wasn't doing very well. And since I had done a bunch of time in the military, I had missed, they were my rocks, man, my grandfather and my grandmother. And I'm fortunate to still have my grandmother in my life. She's always been my number one. And I remember I'd be like, Hey grandma, I did so-and-so like I was a punk as a teenager, man. And she's like, well, I'm sure they had it coming. Like they were probably mean to you or something like she's, <laughs> I can't do any wrong in her eyes, man. And which is a blessing, but also not so much. Right. I like the accountability. Um, so I came back to California for them. Did, did any of those demons, your past demons when you were younger come back to haunt you? Like when you came back? Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for, for asking that because no one, I don't think in any of these interviews has ever went there with those specific words. And what's interesting, Vinny, is that I had felt entities as a little boy in the house when I was left home alone and stuff. And so I was in tune with that. I just didn't know what it was. And so it scared me. And so this might be woo-woo for some of your audience. And yeah, it kind of is. However, I definitely have had like demons attached to me. I remember like having night terrors and tremors where I would be paralyzed in my sleep and like have nightmares where demons would try to come and attack me 
it's weird. Like I can see it in my head now and I try not to entertain it. And what's interesting is I did some work with some really special healers. Um, thanks to Doc Mike is one of them. And I, uh, I no longer have those, those nightmares. I worked with a shaman in New York as well. And we essentially did like a modern day exorcism is what I would call it. It was really weird and trippy, man. And um, so those, those no longer are part of the essence of who or what I am. So the exorcist was on yourself or on the, the, the home? No, it was on me. It was absolutely on me. I like, I literally was like, for a back a letter, for a lack of better words, like mildly possessed, right? Like doing things or acting out in a way that's not aligned with the essence of who and what I am. So it's almost like something else is taking over me. I've never shared this before, so I appreciate this. So, so I had no correlation to the PTSD. This was something that was a part of you even at a young age. I may have had some. I was around some crazy stuff as a kid. I would imagine that I had picked up some things as a kid. And I believe that also the lands in the Middle East are kind of cursed. There's a lot of crazy stuff that's going on over there. And I don't pay attention to media. But I, I know what I've seen. And I could just tell you that the, those lands are, are, are pretty dangerous. You can feel it when you get there. And it's not just about being shot at. And so I feel like I've had multiple dark entities, whether you want to call it demon or whatever, and you can feel it, like influence your thoughts. Like you have all these crazy thoughts. You're like, what? Where did that come from? And again, like these night terrors are are horrible, and it's crazy how now it doesn't happen. Well, and then we didn't we talked about because we previously talked about the idea that at the age of eight, I think it was right when you had a, a incident happen to yourself that like that could also you mean incorporate with everything else you're talking about. You gotta go into that a little more. Sure. And I hadn't really shared this too much until I was in my 30s. I'm 38 now. And that was because of fear of being judged. And I guess I was ashamed. And that was when I was eight, I was molested by a little by another boy, a teenager. And I, you know, I really just blocked that out and never really chose to acknowledge that. And what, I'm lear- what I've learned in my journey and transformation is that everything is going to reveal itself at some point in time in our lives, and we can either die with it and not heal from it or move past it, or we can address it. But this whole turning and looking the other way or deflecting, it's still going to be there. So one of my healers, Doc Mike, is like, the only way through it is through it. And I can't agree with that more. Wow. So uh, this is usually the part where I ask what kind of hurdles you had, have you gone through and how did you overcome them? Uh, we, got, we got a lot of them right here. I mean, so let's, okay. So the first, like the first two that kind of pop up are the ideas of being molested by someone older than you. Right. And you kind of almost went away from that. Right. You kind of put that on the back burner until later in life. The sec- second one is the idea of getting stabbing yourself. Right. And this kind of incident, you kind of went away with it by going to the military. So, I mean, you might not have actually resolved them at those times. Later in life, how did you get through those things? And so I've done a variety of modalities to heal past things. And so some of it's kind of woo-woo and pretty hippie, like you know, energy work or Reiki, EMDR. Well, EMDR is not so woo-woo. And so 
I think it's been a combination of all these modalities and EFT, you know, tapping and all these modalities I think have contributed to those things just not having so much power over me. And, you know, I've developed like seven tips to unlock one's potential. And so applying those seven steps has really helped me step into who and what I am and not living so much in my past. I mean, the stories are great as it relates to now people will listen, but really I care more about what are the things that can we can move mountains together with, right? Can we get the spark notes of the seven? Just the yeah. spark. So one of the things was, you know, I was doing that drug dealing and stealing and robbing people and all that stuff as a teenager, and I was being fake. And so the first one is, you know, about being authentic and stepping into your you know, the true essence of who and what you are. Now, here's what's interesting is as men, we have this whole stigma on what it is to be a man, right? And so I think that's kind of interesting. And what I've learned is that I am a warrior. And if I am to truly be challenged and I need to step into it, I have no problem doing that. However, I hope that I never have to. I hope that I can be a soft man, a gentle man, a caring and loving and kind man, which I was like, man, if I cry three times a year, I'm a punk ass bitch. And now I don't care. I've cried like probably three times in the past two days. And, you know, so it's about being authentic and really tapping into who you are, not who you think you need to be for your family, which is true for a lot of high performers that have high performer parents. Right. So be straight up and be authentically who you are. And the second one is to not listen to the haters. And so if I would have listened to the haters when all those things have happened, then, you know, I would still be saying, you know, I think today I'll just walk the beach with my dog and get a euro and just hide. Right. And that's not living. That's what, what life is about. And so I encourage people to not listen to the haters because the reality is this. Some people love real estate and investing in it and other people hate it. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same item. How can people be so pro and con with it? It's just preference and personality. So I encourage people not to listen to the haters because they're always going to be there, especially as you gain more influence on others. And then another one is going to be making all your wrongs a right. And man, I had a lot of wrongs that I needed to make right. And that's really freeing. In fact, what came to me in doing that is me being at peace with dying. Like once I made all my wrongs right, it's like I've taken care of everything that needs to be taken care of. How long did that take you to uh, build the list and actually uh, right those wrongs? I'm so it didn't take very long to make the list at all. It's like a day. And as far as making them right, I'm still in that process. Mm. And I got to share like that, that process isn't something I developed. It was by way of one of my healers. Like he gets all the credit for that. Um, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to meet some incredible people that have shared, shared with me things to massively help me transform my life. And so Number one, being authentic. Number two, the haters. And the number three is, you know, making your wrongs a right. And that's so, that's so freeing for us. Now, another one is self-care, which that is really hard for us to do out here in SoCal because 
so many of us are hustling and grinding and competing and trying to outperform and outdo and now compete with others. And so it's like, man, I need to get that, that edge on, on my competition or whatever else. Well, I say, let go of all of that and take care of yourself first. So I have a three hour morning ritual that's like dialed in. Now, one thing that I've recently started to do is change it. And so I'll do something a bit random. So it's not too routine. And I think that that's important as well. I also do random stuff like I'll use my left hand to like wipe down the counter versus me using my dominant right hand because it allows to create new synapses in the brain. And so I like to do that type of stuff as it relates to my self-care. But that's something that has been missing in nearly my entire life. By the way, who's teaching us that? When we're growing up in school or wherever, who's ever saying like this self-care is a thing? Yeah, no so one. It doesn't exist. And so I'm a big believer in like you take care of you, number one, because I feel as though when we do so, we can show up as the best Ryan, the best Vinny possible for our friends, family, and whoever we encounter in that day. So we got to do us first. And sometimes that means boundaries, which is uncomfortable for a lot of us. And But it's, it's a healthy thing and it's a good thing. And so I encourage people to do self-care. And then – I'll share one more in the interest of time. And if people want to know all seven, um, we can offer a freebie to give them all seven. And so the last one is to gain mastery. And I say mastery specifically, not an expert. Because experts learn and then they stop learning. And they're like, yeah, I am the authority in the space. And they guess what? They do. They know a lot. They really do. However, for those that are truly the real deal, and choose to think outside the box. They can spot out you're just an expert versus a master. And a master says, yeah, I'm definitely an expert and I'm still a student. I continue to learn. And those are masters. And I learned that from Google X Tom Chi. So Tom Chi talks about that. And I think that's brilliant. And so doing mastery in something. And I feel as though it's our each of our duties to be one of the best in whatever it is that we have that, that high passion and purpose and desire towards, become one of the best and offer that to the world. So it's not just gain mastery, it's gain mastery and then offer it and serve others. Because what's going to happen is it's going to be so rewarding. Like what I'm able to do as it relates to transforming people's lives with their dogs, because some people that have dogs that are like, listen and they're chill and they just pull a little bit, they... They actually take it for granted versus those that have a dog that wants to kill people, literally, right? That's that's impacting their entire life. It's crazy. And so one of the gifts I share is my understanding of dog behavior and psychology and transforming not just the dog but the owner's life together, right? And so that's that's the last one we'll share is gain mastery and then be of service to others. All right. So there's a lot of nuggets right there that – we could probably dive into, but yeah, we'll we'll direct them to your direction to to go through all seven. I think, I mean, just a tidbit that I take off it with being authentic. I think in our social media age, it's so difficult to do that. You know, about being basically listening to don't listen to your haters. The same thing, like both those go hand in hand with this whole social media thing. Yeah. But it's like everyone wants to be a critic, especially behind the keyboard. Yeah, keyboard warriors. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, yeah. Oh, so there, I think that's that's fantastic right there. The the next kind of idea I kind of wanted to jump back to, we usually kind of jump into the idea if you could give uh, feedback or give advice to 
either someone trying to get into the field or your younger self, I would really be curious because you, you seem so different from who you were, at least how you were laying it to a young age. If you could talk to that 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid before they went to the military, what kind of advice would you give them? Hmm. <laughs> I would say <laughs> hang, hang on for the ride and persevere because on the other side, it's going to be a really beautiful thing. But I appreciate everything that's happened to me. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't get rid of any of it because it allows me to serve other people, man. Right. And so I can relate to a lot of people because I've been through a lot. And the other thing is I can provide hope. I mean, it, it, it's powerful that you, you say that right there. Like I, I hear some other people that I've, I've had been lucky enough to talk to and it's really how you reframe reframe everything you do. Like some people would stop at the stabbing thing. They'd be like, I'm just gonna go down this path, this is who I am, you know, blah, blah. Or it's like when you have that incident with the the your dogs, your training, I'm just done with it, just stay in that kind of that space right there. But you kind of looked at it, hey, that's who I am, that's how I grow. Um but what's what's next for Ryan Matthews? What's next for you? Yeah, man. So <laughs> now it's a matter of learning how to play at the next level. And so I've done pretty decent. Like I know how to build a million dollar company, but not multi-million dollar company. And I say multi-million because when we make that much money, it also shows the type of value we've been able to provide towards others. But ultimately that's what it's really about for me is how can I scale myself? Because I have a neural association tied with when Ryan gives his time one-on-one -on -one, over and over and over too much, he maybe gets sick, right? And I want to learn from how I did things in the past and improve upon and become more efficient and leverage myself more so. So what I'm trying to do, not what I'm trying, what I am doing is creating an online dog training platform. It's going to be available in about two months where right now I'm hundreds of, hundreds of dollars per hour to work with me for dog training. I only take a few select people per month and um, that's not, that doesn't feel good for me as it relates to the collective. And so that's why we're going to offer like 37 bucks a month, online dog training, over 100 videos. And you can learn from me by way of watching videos and then webinar. And so that's one way I'm scaling myself. I'm sharing myself with the masses. And my game plan is to get that into the 25,000 dog rescues in America. Because if we can have the support for the dog owners when they first get a dog, we can reduce the frustration. We can reduce the dogs being returned to the shelter. And that means those 2 million pets that are euthanized every year, that means we can impact those numbers in a positive way. And so that's the world of dog training brand. And then I also have Peace of Mind Hemp, which is a no THC, meaning non-intoxicating hemp-based brand for pets. And that's me just saying thank you because my military working dog kept me safe and alive in the war. And... I did not know how to feel, man. I did not know how to love or care for people, but dogs I was able to care for as I started to evolve and grow and dogs taught me how to love again. And so I feel like I owe them my life and my peace of mind brand is my way of giving back to saying thank you to dogs and hoping that I can help them on their tough days because the reality is, look, sick dogs and sick Ryan, we have some things in common. I know what it's like to go through some life-threatening things. And then the, the last part is my Survivor to Thriver brand, 
which is IamRyanMatthews.com. And with that, I do professional public speaking and I do transformational work with people. Uh, and I only work with people that are truly ready for change. That results, that is essentially with everything and anything I do, I say no a lot because I only want to work with people that are truly eager and ready. They just don't know how to get there from where they're at. All right, I got one last question. And maybe this is a little bit of selfish of me for this question right here. No I don't have a dog right now, but I'm planning to have a dog next year. What's one piece of advice you can give to someone that doesn't have a dog right now that's looking to have a dog in the future? That's so great, man. I love this. Don't get a dog based on the cute factor. Okay. Get it based on the personality. Now, hire someone like me to help you pick out and read the personality of the dog. So get a trainer, a behaviorist that can say, that dog is very hyper. And so you want to match your lifestyle and your preferences with the essence of the pet. Now, you can't figure that out on your own. You need a professional to say, ah, that's naturally a calm dog. That's an eager dog. That dog wants to work or that's a lazy dog. And so, again, your lifestyles need to be aligned. So don't worry about the breed so much, although there are some generalizations there. And so don't focus on the looks. Focus on the essence and the personality of the animal. I never heard that, that to get a trainer before you got a dog. That's wow. That's really, that's great advice for there. We could do hours and hours of content as it relates to dog uh, training philosophy. And, and it's kind of fun, man. It really just flows. So there's a whole lot more to share. And I'll tell you what, Vinny, I'll send you my book. And it talks <laughs> about getting a, a, how to be prepared before you even get a dog. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ryan, for all the information you gave. Anyone listening right here, I mean, if you didn't get some great tidbits from Ryan, I don't think you had the volume up. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Ryan, again. And, uh, man, great success right there, man. Thanks for the opportunity, brother. I hope it was really valuable for your audience. Definitely. Everyone listening, please subscribe, please share, and tell your friends. And if you, you're looking to buy a dog, you own a dog, if you're looking just for some inspiration, follow Ryan. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.vinnysd.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. Team Vinny SD, signing off.